The Specialty Stories podcast is part of the MedEd Media Network at mededmedia.com. Now, you may be interested, if you are a medical student listening to this, especially an early medical student, we are about to launch a new podcast called Board Rounds, where we focus on the USMLE and Comlex Step 1 and Level 1. Go check us out at mededmedia.com. That's M-E-D-E-D media.com. This is Specialty Stories, session number 18. Whether you are a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you will want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information you need to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Now, welcome to the Specialty Stories Podcast. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, and I'm the host here at this podcast, as well as many others, including a new one that I mentioned at the beginning, Board Rounds Level 1 and Step 1 for your board prep needs. It's going to be a co-branded podcast with MedQuest, and yeah, I'm excited to launch that in the next couple of weeks. So today we have an awesome guest that is going to share her story and her specialty of child and adolescent psychiatry. So let's go ahead and jump right in and meet Jacqueline. I'm Jacqueline Hubbard, child and adolescent psychiatry. And how long have you been practicing? Almost two years. When did you know? So you're, you're a child and adolescent trained psychiatrist. When did you know you wanted to do that for a living? Um, I knew probably sophomore year of college that I wanted to go to medical school. And then when I went to medical school, I kind of narrowed down my choices and I really liked pediatrics and I really liked psychiatry and I ended up picking psychiatry and then uh, decided on the child and adolescent fellowship. How did you, as you got to that decision point between peds and psychiatry, how did you go down the psychiatry path? I felt like when I was on peds, I was somewhat rushed and I wanted to talk more to the patients instead of just doing a physical exam and listening to the heart. I felt like I was being rushed. So I wanted to always have uh, more time to sit down and get to know the patients on a deeper level. Just because I, I love peds and the, the, the joke is always, well, you're not dealing with the patients, you're dealing with the parents. Uh, I'm assuming from the psychiatry standpoint, there's less parent involvement. There is a lot of parent involvement. A lot of what I do is educating parents and we talk a lot about different parenting skills and we do a lot of behavior modification, teaching parents about positive reinforcement. So I do deal a lot with the parents, um, just like in peds too. Okay. Interesting. What traits do you think lead to being a good child and adolescent psychiatrist? Someone that is a good listener, um, someone who's empathetic, um, cares a lot about the patients and looking at the patient as a whole, um, someone who has a lot of patience, um, since you do deal a lot with families, and what? someone who's inquisitive and making sure that you're looking at the big picture and ruling out other things that may not just be your specialty, like um, vitamin deficiencies or thyroid and that kind of thing. Okay. 
And you were in a private practice setting. What what led you down the path into private practice? After I graduated, I took a job um, working at a community mental health center where I ran an inpatient unit and did some outpatient work. And they had a residency program there. I knew I wanted to teach um, residents and medical students. And I felt the outpatient was, um, it was 15-minute appointments and there, there was overbooking. And I felt just very rushed and like I could provide better care uh, working for a more of a private practice model. So I took a job doing a group private practice, and then I um, ended up leaving that and wanting to just do it on my own and making it the way exactly the way that I would want it. And if I were a patient, exactly kind of how I would want to go in and see someone. Nice. Okay. Describe what, what types of patients are you treating? I treat um, ADHD, depression, a lot of anxiety, OCD, autism spectrum disorders, some bipolar, uh, a lot of oppositional defiant kids, some substance use, and then I also see some adults for binge eating disorder. Interesting. Why the extra adult side of things too? I don't see that diagnosis as much in kids. So in adults, I'm a little more particular about who I take. So I will see a lot of severe anxiety, OCD, depression in adults, as well as some childhood issues that, you know, kids with autism end up, you know, being adults with autism. So I find that child and adolescent psychiatrists are good providers for those types of issues since we're used to treating them. Interesting. So the... The just for for educational purposes, the fellowship training of child and adolescent psychiatry doesn't limit you once you're out in practice to only see child and adolescent patients. No, I'm double board certified, so I have a board certification in general psychiatry, and then I have a board certification in child and adolescent psychiatry. My board certification number is actually in the 9,000s, so there's really not that many child and adolescent psychiatrists, which is why I try to focus my practice mostly on that, because there's a, a big need for it. Interesting. Why do you think there aren't that many? There are not that many fellowship spots, and I think a lot of medical students um, are not exposed to it as as um, as often as they could be. Um, so some people just aren't aware that it's something that they can go into, and then the limit of the uh, fellowship spots. So where I trained at University of South Florida, we only had two spots my year so it was me and one other fellow okay from a now i'm kind of going off into the weeds because this is interesting so kind of flipping the previous question i asked can a general psychiatrist see the child and adolescent patients uh they they technically can there are definitely general psychiatrists who will see most of the time um, older adolescents. So some, it, it depends on their comfort level. They technically can, but a lot of times during the general psychiatry training, when I was in the general program, we only, we only had a month of child psychiatry and then a half a day in outpatient per week. So it's very limited. 
Um, so you really don't get the ex exposure to treat a lot of kids, especially for some of the more, when you pick up autisms, for example, you know, that's something that's picked up in most of the time in the pediatric population. So you don't really get the training and experience treating those types of things and ADHD as well. Yeah. So, so very needed, um, physician. Yes. Okay. Describe a typical day for you. Uh, every day is different, which is what I like about the job. So my day typically starts anywhere because it's a private practice. I can decide when the day starts. So if, if I choose to, I'm, I have some patients that I come in early to see. So like tomorrow I fit somebody in at 7 a.m. Um, cause personally I like coming in early and not working too late. So, um, I'll start anywhere from seven to nine or 10, depending on the day. And then I typically try to be done by five. Okay. My patients. So for a kid evaluation, I'll see them for uh, 90 minutes for an adult. I typically leave myself 75 minutes and then I do half hour follow-ups. I do have some patients that will come for therapy on a more regular basis, um, weekly or every other week who I see for an hour at a time. So it's, it, there's a lot of variety. I never know, you know, uh, what I'm going to get that day, especially when I'm seeing new patients, which makes it more interesting and fun. Yeah. So a far cry from 15 minute appointments. Definitely. <laughs> Describe the difference between a follow up and the consult or the, the new patient and, and therapy, as you called it. Um, so for a new patient, I do a full clinical interview. If it's a, if it's a child patient, I will typically sit down and talk with the family. If the parents want to talk alone and not in front of the child, I'll talk with the parents and find out what their concerns are. And then for all kids, I will try to meet with the child alone if they're willing to. I won't push it if, if they if they don't want to or the parents don't want to, but I like to talk to the kid alone. And then we will all sit down and, and talk together, the, the, the parents and the patient and myself, and I come up with a treatment plan, which I usually write down for them while I'm talking to them so that they can walk away and not have to try to remember things and everything's kind of written down. And so typically that will be going over whether I'm recommending a specific type of therapy, like cognitive behavior therapy, um, and or exposure and response prevention. We'll talk about any lab work that I recommend or order. We'll talk about medications. We'll talk about um, different supplements like omega-3s. Um, and then if there's any other referrals that the patient might need, like an occupational therapy referral or um, speech language referral or neuropsych testing, we'll talk about that and we'll go over what that means. Um, and then I try to get them to sign a release for their primary care provider because part of my job, I feel like, is working with an interdisciplinary team of their primary care provider, any specialists like a pediatric neurologist or a gastroenterologist or even cardiologist for clearance of any of the medications. Um, so we cover all of that, and, and then I'll book their follow-up. 
And then for their follow-up appointments, we will go over uh, their treatment plan again, see what's been done in between appointments, if they've established with a therapist or um, an occupational therapist or speech therapist. Uh, we'll talk about their medications, make sure they're not having side effects, and find out what's been going on in between the appointments, how school's going, if it's during the school year, um, how family life is going, those kinds of things, and, and then um, refill their medication if they're on medications. And then for therapy, um, I am trained in cognitive behavior therapy, which is the therapy that is approved for anxiety and depression. I'm also trained in exposure and response prevention, which is an excellent therapy for OCD and social anxiety. It involves doing exposures for um, kids and adults where you put them in a situation that causes them anxiety, but you start at, you know, it's a hierarchy where you start at the bottom of the hierarchy, something that may cause one out of 10 anxiety instead of something, you know, a 10 out of 10 anxiety. Um, and so it lasts for about an hour and sometimes we'll use workbooks. Um, like for young kids, they have really good workbooks that are tailored to young kids, like a coping cat workbook where uh, it breaks it down and puts it into language that the child is familiar with and teaching about uh, teaching about recognizing emotions and naming emotions and what those might mean. So the therapy patients I will see on a more regular basis, um, weekly or every other week, uh, very rarely they'll come twice a week. And um, it's for an hour, so it's it's really neat because you really get to know the patients um, at, a, at a different level and you're really getting to know the families because you're seeing them so often. Now, I do have patients that will see an outside therapist, like a licensed mental health counselor or a psychologist or um, a social worker, a clinical social worker for therapy. And, and at that time, I will have the patients, if they're willing, sign a release so that we can all kind of work together. And they'll see me more for medications and sort of managing the treatment team and then the therapist they will see for therapy. As a private practice physician, how does call, what does call look like for you? Well, um, it all depends on the state that you're in and whether or not you take insurance. So I do not accept insurance directly, but I'm an out-of-network psychiatrist, as in patients can see me and they pay out of pocket to see me and then they can request reimbursement from their insurance. Insurances require that you have some type of call system in place. Whereas when you're out of network, I have in my policies that if it's an emergency, they can call 911 or go to an ER. But with my practice, I do also have a secure portal that they can send me a message in, like secure email, and they can do that anytime. So I have patients that will send me messages, you know, after hours, which I encourage because, it, it, you know, I think it's good to know what's going on. And then I also have patients that will call me after hours. It goes to voicemail. But if they feel that it's an urgent voicemail, they can press the number four and then it comes and alerts me that it's an urgent uh, voice message. But I tell them that when they call me for their first appointment, and during their first appointment, we kind of go over how I do not have an on-call service or an emergency service after hours. Is that a common setup for private practice psychiatrists to not take call and to be an out-of-network provider? It is in my area. 
Um, in my area, most of the private practice uh, physician psychiatrists are out of um, because it's much easier to run a practice that way and not have to hire any staff. So the overhead is, you know, a lot lower. I don't have any office staff, so I do everything from the, the patient's first phone call to, you know, taking their payment. And when you say um, for your area, you're talking geographic area or area of specialty? Um, Probably both. Okay. Now, I worked at a group before doing this, and the call, uh, technically I was not on call, but the psychologists that work for the group answered the phone after hours. Do you feel like the your current setup, you being the boss, you have good work-life balance? Definitely. Definitely. It's very flexible. I can block my schedule, you know, whenever I choose um, for my child's, you know, events at school or a birthday or a trip. I, I just block my schedule and we're good to go. Nice. Talk about the path to becoming a child and adolescent psych, um, psychiatrist, the residency and fellowship training. After medical school, it's a the general psychiatry residency program is four years, and then the child and adolescent fellowship program is an additional two years. But most programs will allow you after three years, so three years of the general psychiatry residency, they allow you to enter into the two-year fellowship, so that will cut out a year. So then overall, it would be a total of five years after medical school. Interesting. What's the thought process behind behind that? Well, because fourth year is usually a lot of electives, and so you're doing different rotations. You've basically gotten everything that's required during the first um, three years, plus they know that you're going to be doing more inpatient and outpatient work and consultation work doing the fellowship. Okay. So it's kind of like medical school's going down to three years if you know you're going into family practice. <laughs> it's about the <laughs> I guess same. So. Yeah, okay. Is child and adolescent psychiatry, and I guess psychiatry in general, um, how competitive is it to match? Um, I would say the residency, it, it varies year to year. Residency, for me, I stayed where I went to medical school, so that made it pretty easy on on me. I think if you go, it depends on if you're trying to go, you know, to an Ivy League type place. It, it's definitely more competitive. Um, you know, it's probably not as competitive as doing something like plastic surgery or dermatology. The fellowship program was very competitive. Uh, from my experience, we only had two spots, and there were four of us in, in my class of eight that wanted to go to our fellowship program, and we only applied to ours, so only half of us got it. So it was pretty competitive to get into the fellowship program. Okay. So you did, it sounds like you did all of your training at USF then? I did the my medical school and residency and fellowship at USF. Okay, great. The so for fellowship, with that being so competitive because there are so few spots, what what does a resident have to do to stand out for fellowship? Get to know the child uh, faculty. I think if you're considering going into child and adolescent um, 
it's important to, during my second year, we had electives and we apply during third year. So my child and adolescent um, rotation was actually the end of second year, which I wasn't completely sure yet. And I hadn't had exposures. So I scheduled my electives, which were earlier in the year for child and adolescent psychiatry to get to know um, the child and adolescent faculty and to also make sure and confirm my choice that I wanted to do it. So I think if you show an interest in it, it's important to get to know the faculty so that you can get great recommendation letters from from the faculty. And another great thing to do would be to join ACAP, which is American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatrists. They are our national uh, organization for child and adolescent psychiatrists, and they accept medical students for free. So if you were considering doing it, it's a great conference. We have a yearly conference, and there's medical students there, and, and residents can also um, participate and at discounted rates, I believe, too. Awesome. That's great. You're an MD, obviously, having trained at USF. Do you see any bias towards DOs? Not at my program. We did not have um, bias towards um, DOs. Actually, the other fellow that I graduated with was a, was a DO from Lake Erie. So, no, I think there's a lot of DOs that gravitate towards um, psychiatry, um, I believe maybe because of their training and, and looking taking a holistic approach to to the way they look at um, approaching cases. Okay. Now, once you are fellowship trained in child and adolescent um, psychiatry, are there any other opportunities to further subspecialize? Definitely. Definitely. Um, you, you can pursue more fellowships. So if you wanted to do a forensic fellowship and focus on um, the juvenile justice system, you can do that. You can also do an, the, the fellow that's graduating this year also did an addiction fellowship. So he added an, an additional year of that as well. Um, plus, if you don't do an additional fellowship, you can also choose a diagnosis that you really enjoy treating like autism and, and focus just your practice on that. There are autism private practices out there where the psychiatrist mainly treats autism. Um, so you can pick a particular diagnosis that, that you enjoy and that you find very rewarding to treat and focus your practice on that. Great. Now, some students listening to this are going to go into primary care and be pediatricians mm -hmm. or internal medicine docs. What would you want to tell them so that they can help you do your job so that their job is easier? I think it's important for all of us to work together. Um, and I try to make it easy for pediatricians or internal medicine doctors for us to work together. Uh, I will send a letter to them letting them know the diagnosis um, along with any lab work. I think if a lot of times the primary care doctors are ordering lab work uh, before the psychiatrists are. So if they know, if they're referring to a specific psychiatrist and the patient agrees in the office, I think it would be great to have them go ahead and sign a release and send over, you know, a little form saying that they're 
you know, referring the patient and that here's uh, some lab work. I have some of the primary care doctors that do that. Um, so if they're concerned about depression, um, you know, it's important for them to be thinking of psychiatric diagnoses and, and screen for um, definitely safety concerns. And if there are any safety concerns, you know, they can, it's good to have a referral relationship with a psychiatrist that they trust where they can call them and, and run cases by them and let them know, you know, I'm very concerned about this patient. What should I do? You know, should I send them to the hospital? Um, kind of like curbside consultations like that. Okay. What other specialties do you work the closest with? I work the closest with therapists. Um, because they're seeing the patients more frequently than I am a lot of times. So the therapists will send me messages with updates on how they're doing. I also work a lot with neurologists. A lot of the patients, for example, autism, um, they should have a baseline EEG to rule out comorbid seizures. Um, so I work with with neurologists. And then, you know, for kids, a lot of times they might have vague somatic complaints like, stomach pain or headaches. You know, if they're complaining a lot of, about stomach pain, they, they might end up seeing a GI doctor um, and then the neurologist for headaches and, and things like that. I would say it's mostly primary care in terms of from a medical standpoint, but then also neurologist and um, gastroenterologist uh, gastro, uh, and also endocrinologist and OB-GYNs. So a lot of OB-GYNs, they're, they're doing a great job of screening for postpartum anxiety or depression and, and they'll refer me their patients as well. What do you wish you knew before going into uh, your current specialty? Well, I wish I had more uh, exposure to the different areas that you could practice. I think I probably, if I had had more experience in the different, basically with my training, we trained mostly at the VA uh, and at the University Academic Center. I wish that I had more exposure to other places um, like the justice system and like um, community mental health, for example, where I took that, that job. Is that something that students and and residents can be looking for in a program or do you think because there are so few programs that it's just something you need to know that you need to seek out while you're in a program i think it's important to to be aware that where you do your training things could be different elsewhere and to seek out mentors outside of where you train Okay. I think that's important. Yeah. Well, that's what this podcast is here for, too, to give people that insight to know that there's other things out there. Yeah. What do you like the most about being a child and adolescent psychiatrist? Um, I think that it's a great privilege to work with families. I love getting to know the patients and getting to work with families. And it's really exciting seeing patients get better. And when you treat kids, you really get to see kids 
make a lot of strides and you can make a huge difference in the trajectory of their lives in general. And so that's really what I love most about my job is, is getting to work with families and seeing the progress that they make. It's very rewarding. What do you like the least? The administrative, <laughs> the administrative stuff that I have to do. I probably like the least <laughs> Which like is, prior authorizations yeah. for, for medications and, um, you know, just administrative tasks like writing 504 letters and things like that. Yeah. And it's, 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 um, compounded by the fact that you're in private practice as well. Yes, exactly. Returning phone calls. Yeah. And <laughs> that kind of thing. Do you see any major changes, whether it's, uh, technology or new diagnoses or anything coming down the road for child and adolescent psychiatry that will make big changes in how you practice? I think it's important for us to stay on top of what's happening in our field. Um, there are so many cool things that are coming out, like the ability to do telepsychiatry, um, where you can see patients that are not necessarily in your city, but in your state. So I see college kids who will go off to Gainesville or to, Flor to Florida State and will still be able to do telepsych appointments because they're still in the state of Florida where I'm licensed. And so that's really neat. And I'm sure it's only going to get better from, from there. That's interesting. What, um, are, are there any unique opportunities outside of clinical medicine for child and adolescent psychiatrists? Oh, definitely. There's opportunities to get involved with uh, the education system, uh, educating uh, parents. There's a lot of education involved. So if you like teaching and, and mentoring, you can get involved and do talks for the community on just mental health issues in general, um, like the importance of sleep. Um, you can work with the school systems to not just educate parents, but to also educate teachers and guidance counselors on mental health issues and advocacy issues that children face. Um, so there's lots of opportunities to be involved in non-clinical uh, work. Okay. So you're only two years into this, so still pretty new, but if you had to do it all over again, would you still choose child and adolescent psychiatry? Definitely. I love my job. Awesome. Now for, for pre-meds or medical students or, or internal medicine uh, residents maybe that are interested in psychiatry um, or even the, the general psychiatry residents looking at child and adolescent psychiatry, what words of wisdom, final words of wisdom do you have to um, tell them to, to take a look into it? I would encourage them to to look into it and to reach out to a child and adolescent psychiatrist and learn more about it because we are so needed and you will always have a job and you can really make a difference in kids and young adults' lives. So I would highly encourage anyone considering it uh, to do it or to learn more about it to make sure that you want to do it. All right. So there you have it, Jacqueline. Hubbard with Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. Sounds like an awesome and much needed specialty. So if you're interested in psychiatry, if you're interested in working with kids, and if you're going down this path like Jacqueline did 
of liking to work with children, but not wanting to be as rushed as pediatricians are, then take a look at child and adolescent psychiatry. It looks like you can make a huge difference in kids' lives and their families, which is an awesome thing. So again, thank you, Jacqueline, for joining us here on the Specialty Stories podcast. If you have a specialty you want covered, let me know, ryan at medicalschoolhq.net. If you know a physician that you think would make a great guest for this podcast, let me know, ryan at medicalschoolhq.net. If you like this podcast, I'd love a rating interview in iTunes. You can go check us out. Just go to iTunes, search for Specialty Stories, and leave a rating interview right there. Or if you're on your phone right now, your iPhone specifically, go leave a rating interview in the podcast app. But more importantly, I would love for you to share this with your with your school, with your classmates, with everybody. I don't charge you for the podcast, so that's my, that's my uh, ask for you. Go share this with somebody. I hope you have a great week and come back. Check us out next week here at the Specialty Stories Podcast.